When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I had just started working at Google and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO of the company about how the AdSense business was doing. Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers the, uh, the, the, we had added over the last couple of months, Eric almost fell off his chair. So I'm feeling like the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe I'm a genius. <laughs> I walked out of the room. I walked past my boss, who is Sheryl Sandberg, and I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back. And eventually she said to me, when you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. And I realized in the case of Cheryl, it really boiled down to two things. Well, folks, it's time to kick it old school. Welcome back to another episode of Growth Minds. Today we have a very special guest coming in from SF. Uh, as we do another remote interview, Kim Scott, who's the author of Radical Candor. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yep. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's, it's really an honor. I, uh, I first discovered your book, um, I think a few years ago, and I just loved how simple the message is. Uh, particularly the way you have it in the cover, which is you've got these four quadrants, and yeah. uh, and and of course the we'll go into what the book is around, but um, the message it seems, if I can simplify it, is that for to become an effective leader and a, and a, and a leader that's more human, uh, the idea is that you need to care personally, but also challenge directly. Um, I'd be curious to know what the storyline is of how you decided to write a book like this. It's a, it's a, you know, it's really interesting. I, in many ways, my whole career, my whole career in business was really a grand plan to subsidize my novel writing habit. (laughs) (laughs) So for a bunch of my career, I would work for a couple of years and then save up enough money to be able to stop working for a year and write a novel. And, and, and the novel writing never paid. And I, I really realized at a certain point that the thing that interested me about business was the same thing that interested me about writing novels, which is the question of, How can we express who we are and create the kind of environment in which we want to live? And how can we be our best selves? And and I realized that the opportunity of being a manager really gives you the chance to do that, to create this environment in which people can really love their work and even really love working with their colleagues. Um, And so that, that was sort of what prompted me to write the book was that I, ha- I felt like I had so many ideas. The thing that motivated me at, at Google was not cost per click, although that was going pretty well, but <laughs> it was really building the team and, uh, and, and watching people grow and enjoy their careers and enjoy their lives. And, um, and so that was why I wrote the book. 
another another part of the reason why I wrote the book was that I I became a, a CEO coach and I was really lucky. I, I was coaching Dick Costello and Drew at, at when he was CEO of Twitter and Drew Houston at Dropbox and Ryan uh, Smith at Qualtrics. And I realized that coaching just doesn't scale. Uh, you, you can only coach a few people and do it effectively. But, the, but I had a lot of people asking me for help and advice and all different kinds of people, including people just starting out in their management career and, uh, and also quite, quite, quite advanced in their management career. And I realized that being a boss is really the same thing, whether you're just starting out or whether you're the CEO of a fast-growing uh, big company. And it, it really boils down to you want to create a culture of feedback, you want to build a cohesive team, and you want to get stuff done. Uh, and, and those are the things that, you know, what do bosses do? A lot of people ask that question. So, so I decided that writing a book would scale better than being a CEO coach. Sure. I'm curious to know what, what is a CEO coach? What's the responsibility of a CEO coach and why do CEOs hire a coach? So it is, it is a, it's a good question and I don't have a, a totally clear answer, but mm. I think that the, the thing that I struggled with as a leader and the, the thing that most of the people who I've coached struggle with as leaders is, is really figuring out sort of the human element, figuring out uh, how, in, who are the right people to promote? Who are the right people to hire? How can I help this team sort of coalesce? How can I help this team, the people on the team, get together better? And that you know, there's there's often so many. It, you're, it's it's sort of a, a it's a particular kind of relationship uh, that you have with each of your direct reports as yeah. uh, as a CEO or as a manager. And you don't really want to talk, if you're the CEO, you don't really want to talk to the board about the issues that you have with the people on your team, because very quickly you lose control of the situation. If you're a new manager, you don't want to talk to your boss necessarily about the problems that you're having with the people on your team. But you also can't talk to the one team member about another team member. That's a disaster. So you need to talk to someone. And Usually, uh, a therapist doesn't quite do it because they don't under they haven't been a boss themselves very often, and so they don't understand like how do you explain performance reviews to your like you wind up spending all your time giving context uh, right. instead of just being able to jump right in. So so and and you know you could talk to your spouse or or your significant other, but they usually get sick of hearing about all these. All these <laughs> work dramas. So, so that's really the job is talking through the, the relationships that you're building at work. Cause that is at the core of what a leader's job is, is building great relationships with each of the direct reports and helping them build great relationships between each other. Right. Yeah. I mean, as a CEO, I imagine you're trying to find every advantage to achieve high performance and just like athletes need coaches that uh, are ideally have been previous athletes, so they are they're able to empathize with the mindset yeah. of the athlete and see the blind spots. Is that similar to what the core value of having a CEO coach is? 
Yes, absolutely. You want someone who's sort of walked a mile in your shoes, and but also someone who is taking a step back and who's able to sort of be thoughtful uh, and and someone who's interested in sort of not the stimulus response of the day-to-day -day, uh, having an, an, an sort of an executive role, but who is really in a in a place in their career where that they're trying to make sense of it, make sense of it all. Yeah, yeah, it's a difficult balance, but it's probably a very um, specialized skill that it's it's quite hard to find, I imagine. It is. There there are a lot of coaches out there who um, are sort of in the job because they failed at the job, and you you don't want those those coaches. There are a lot of people, a lot of, you know, when I really think about management books, so many of them are so theoretical because they're written by academics who've never actually been a manager mm. uh, in any sort of, in, in any sort of significant way. So you, you really do so much of management you learn by doing, uh, but you can learn a lot faster if people who have done the job uh, take the time to take a step back and think about break the job down and think about what makes what makes people successful uh, sure. for, for each part of the job. Yeah, yeah. And so your experience with Google particularly helped a lot, I imagine. And uh, well, it, your your entire brand now is really focusing on giving people feedback, uh, you know, candidly. And I know you had an experience at Google, which led you to writing this book. Can you tell this story a little bit for people that may not have heard about how it really all started for you? Sure, absolutely. Very often when when I describe what radical candor is, I like to start by telling a story. And, and even though radical candor is not about the boss giving the employee feedback, this is what most of us think of uh, and fear, frankly, when, when we think about feedback. So I'll tell you a story about uh, a bo my boss criticizing me, but I'll have the caveat that the important thing about radical candor starts with soliciting feedback, in particular, the boss soliciting feedback. Yeah. Uh, and it's just as much about praise as criticism. But anyway, with that long caveat, here's the story. So I had just started working at Google and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO of the company about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the room, and there in one corner of the room was Sergey Brin in a blue spandex unitard and toe shoes, kind of stepping <laughs> away on an elliptical trainer. And there in the other corner of the room was Eric Schmidt, who was CEO at the time, and he was doing his email, and he was so intent, it was like his brain had been plugged into the machine. Mm. And I felt a little bit nervous. How in the world was I supposed to get these people's attention? Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers the, uh, the, the, we had added over the last couple of months, Eric almost fell off his chair. He said, why did you say this is incredible? Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineering resources? So I'm feeling like the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe I'm a genius. <laughs> I walked out of the room. I walked past my boss, who was Sheryl Sandberg. And I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back. And instead, Cheryl says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, wow, I have screwed something up and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And Cheryl began the conversation by telling me about the things that had gone well in the meeting, 
uh, not the things that had gone badly. So again, not and, and not in the feedback sandwich, not the kind of I think there's a less polite term for that, uh, <laughs> but but not in the sort of kiss me, kick me, kiss you, you me. You can say shit sandwich. <laughs> yeah, not not in the shit sandwich sense of the word. Uh, but but really seeming to mean what she was saying. But of course, all I wanted to hear about was what I had done wrong. And eventually she said to me, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And now I kind of breathed a huge sigh of relief and I made this brush off gesture with my hand because if that was all I had done wrong, who really cared when I had a tiger by the tail? And I was like, yeah, I know it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then Cheryl said to me, well, I know this really great speech coach. I bet I could get Google to pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I'm not picking up on the hints. I kind of make this brush off gesture with my hand. And I said, no, I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? I don't have time for a speech coach. Hmm. And then Cheryl stopped walking. She looked me right in the eye and she said, I can see when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. Yeah. And some people might say it was mean of Cheryl to say I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. Because if she hadn't used just those words with me. Mm. And by the way, she wouldn't have used just those words with other people on her team who were maybe better listeners than I was. <laughs> but if she hadn't used just those words with me, then I never would have gone to see the speech coach and I wouldn't have learned that she was not exaggerating. Mm. I literally said um, every third word. And this was news to me because I had been giving presentations for my entire career. I had raised millions of dollars for a startup giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And it, it was almost like I had I had been going through my entire career with a giant hunk of spinach in between my teeth, <laughs> and nobody had had the common courtesy to tell me it was there. I could get it out if I knew about it, but I didn't know. And so this really got me to thinking, what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? And why had no one else told me? And I realized in the case of Cheryl, it really boiled down to two things. One was she cared about me and not just me, but all the people who worked directly with her at a very personal level, not just as employees, but as human beings. So for example, when I first moved from New York to California to take the job, I was, I was very lonely. I didn't really know anyone out here and I was, I was single and Cheryl could tell I was lonely, and she introduced me to a book club that I'm still part of to this day. Mm. Uh, there, the, when I had a family member fall ill, Cheryl said to me, go get on the plane. Your place is with your family right now. Your team will write your coverage plan. That's what teams do for one another. We have each other's back when we, when we have these, these kinds of incidents. And that was the kind of thing that she couldn't do, obviously, for all 5,000 people in her organization. Uh, sort of relationships don't scale. But she could do it for all the people who work directly with her. And when she did, it created a culture of caring. And culture does scale. And mm -hmm. it's, it's so important how the, the leader of an organization treats the people who they work most closely with. Because then those people tend to treat their people that way. Yeah. Uh, there's a real ripple effect. But at the same time, even though Cheryl 
had our backs and I knew she cared and didn't want to hurt my feelings. I also knew that she would challenge me directly, that if I did something, if I screwed up, she would tell me and she would keep telling me until I heard it, until yeah. I, uh, until it sank, until it penetrated my thick skull. Mm. And so that that's really what it boils down to it, is caring personally and challenging directly and not allowing yourself to feel like there's a false dichotomy between caring and challenging. Challenging is caring. Challenging is a form of caring. Yeah, it's a tough balance. I imagine people tend to be one way or the other. I can speak for myself, just having employees for my company that I'm usually, at least I used to be much more um, less challenging directly, but I would, I would certainly care more personally. And yeah. a lot of the things that you mentioned is through actions, right? And, and words yeah. as well, but actions really tend to show that you really do care. But as I've shifted more into the challenging directly part, I realized that people often get offended still, yes. you know, despite me, maybe, you know, maybe I wasn't caring enough personally, at least I didn't, maybe I didn't show it as well. Um, how do you find, do you have any tips for people that can have difficulty navigating the balance of the two? Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, when you, so I think one thing that really helps is to think about what goes wrong when you are so concerned about someone's feelings that you don't tell them something they're better off knowing in the long run. Uh, and, and to even give a name to what happens when we care, but we don't challenge. So in the book, I call that ruinous empathy. And I, I can tell you a story later about um, one of my experiences with Please ruinous do. empathy. But but really what happens there is that you don't tell somebody something and in the end you wind up having to fire them. And that's not so nice after all. So so remembering that you want to hold on to that desire to be kind at a fundamental level and that not telling people things is not an act of kindness. So you don't want to you don't want to let go of your kindness. Now, sometimes you will be you, you will try to be radically candid with someone, but as you say, they'll get offended. And and that means you've landed in what I call obnoxious aggression, where you challenge directly, but they don't feel like you care about them. And it doesn't mean you are obnoxiously aggressive. These are not labels to hang around people's necks. But what it means is that radical candor gets measured not at your mouth, but at someone else's ear. And so when you realize you have landed in obnoxious aggression, the 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 key thing is not to like feel ashamed or feel like you are a jerk, but to realize that what you need to do is adjust how you're talking. And and when someone is up someone is really upset, uh either they're angry at you or they're sad or maybe they're crying or whatever, that's your cue to move up on the care personally dimension without backing off of challenge directly. Because if you say, oh, it's okay, it doesn't really matter, it's no big deal, you're just confusing them more because the reason why you raised it is because it is a big deal. <laughs> they need to fix it. So you don't want to back off your challenge, but you do want to take a moment and say to the person, name the emotion you're seeing. And, and name it humbly because you may be misinterpreting how the person is feeling. So say, it seems like I've upset you, or it seems like I've pissed you off, or whatever it is that you think you're seeing. Very often, we get confused by other people's emotions. So for example, if you give me some feedback, and I start to cry, 
it's not because I'm sad, it's because I'm furious with you. <laughs> but but that's how I express rage is with tears. Uh, and that's that can be very confusing. There have been other times when I've worked with people uh, and they start yelling at me. And I realize after a little bit that they're yelling at me, not because they're angry, but because they're very upset. So remember that we often misinterpret one another's emotions. So be humble when you state the emotion you think you're seeing. And just eliminate the phrase, don't take it personally from your vocabulary. You, when you give feedback, you will get some emotional responses. And the only way you can gauge the feedback and get to a better place is to use those emotional responses to improve the way you're communicating with that person. Yeah. Uh, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And I also find whenever you say, don't take it personally, people generally get more personal, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like that, it's like that meatloaf song, you know, two out of three ain't bad. And, yeah. and, and things like, don't be sad. Like, he just told her that he doesn't love her. Of course, she's going to be sad. Like, what's the use in saying, don't be sad? Telling people how to feel is really a waste of time. Uh, acknowledging how they feel can be very useful yeah. for your relationships. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, even even like things like this might sound weird. And because the thing you're triggering now is in people's mind is like, they're looking for the weird thing, right? Right before you yeah. say it. So you're kind of ruining the whole purpose of that. Um and, you know, with feedback, it, it is a tricky process because it seems like you're saying personalize the feedback based on the just based on reading people in terms of how they react to to your feedback. Uh, but for more of a general tip for people when you're giving feedback, maybe not just to employees, but friends, family and stuff like that. Do you generally go with praise first before the criticism like you mentioned in, uh, in your story with Google? So the, the reason why the shit sandwich doesn't work is because it's a formula. And whenever we're trying to communicate using a formula, instead of really paying attention to the person who we're talking to, we're, we're, we're failing to communicate. What so is the shit sandwich, by the way? Just so, so for people the, that don't know. The, yeah, the shit sandwich is where you start with praise and then you give some criticism and then you end with praise. <laughs> And which is not to say that that's always the wrong way to do it, but it's definitely not always the right way to do it. So what you want to stay focused on is the other person. And there are some people who uh, who you you really need to make sure that they know that you have confidence in their abilities and you need to work really hard to establish that confidence in their abilities. And you give them just the tiniest, most subtle bit of, of feedback, and they're gonna, that's all they're going to hear. So, uh, so, so that's fine if, if you're dealing the, – the feedback sandwich can work with people who will hear the criticism if you start with the praise. But there are some people – like me, if you give me the shit sandwich, all I'm going to hear is the praise. I'm going to ignore your criticism. Oh, interesting. Uh, so you need to adjust based on the person. Again, the, to, I'm going to say this probably five times in the course of this podcast, but radical candor gets measured not at your mouth, but at the other person's ear. And so you can't try to apply some sort of formula because what the, the, the way the other person is going to respond is unpredictable. 
And so you need to stay sort of fluid. You can try using improv exercises because feedback is about improv. It, you don't know what's going to happen. You can't predict what's going to happen, how the other person is going to respond. And you certainly can't try to control it. I think one of the big mistakes people make uh, when, when they think about feedback is they think if I just if I do it just right, if I choose the perfect words, then the other person will hear me and be grateful for the feedback and won't get upset. And that is just bullshit. That is not what's going to happen. Sometimes people will get upset, but that doesn't mean that you can't adjust and fix it. But you need to you need to go in being humble that at best you can control your own, you can manage your own emotional responses, but you cannot make someone else feel a certain way. You can be a jerk, but you cannot make, the other person owns their emotions. You cannot control another person's emotions. Yeah, I mean, with communication, nonverbal is such a big part of it. It's it's most of it when I imagine for feedback like this. And I, I would also imagine that people generally look for the criticism, uh, which I guess is why the shit sandwich exists. Is like when people hear feedback, they I imagine they would be more self-conscious of the negative criticism that they've heard than some, the positive. Some uh, people are. Some yeah. people are, some people aren't. That's the thing is you can't, you can't generalize about people. Sure. It, again, if you tell me, uh, if you tell me something positive and something negative, I will only hear the positive. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I know anyone that has that. Um, That's interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, sometimes all we, we all think we're really hard on ourselves and all we want to hear is the negative. And, and in fact, most of us do have a negativity bias because we learn from more. We learn more from mistakes than from things that go that go well. But different people are different. And mm. and so you do. I, I do believe that as a general rule, you want to stay focused on the good stuff uh, mm. because as long as someone's, I mean, if you're firing someone, then there's more bad stuff than good stuff, or there's a bad economy. But, but usually there's more good things going on than bad things. And usually your best, le your, your job as a leader is to kind of paint a picture of what's possible and to show what success looks like. And praise is your best tool to show what success looks like and to yeah. show not only the person who did the good thing, but the whole team. Like, this is what success looks like. Uh, so so praise is more important uh, and, and you should give more praise and criticism. You should focus on the good stuff. But that doesn't mean ignore ignore things when they're going mm -hmm. right. Sometimes I compare feedback to 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 scratching someone's back and mm -hmm. that you know, like if there's a, an itch, an itchy spot on your back, you, yes, more to the right. No, no, no. Uh, you know, up a little higher. You, you want to give both instructions. You want to sure. say, yes, go in that direction. No, don't go in that direction. It's guidance. I call, yeah. I, I often call feedback in the book. I refer to it exclusively as, as guidance because feedback is sort of screechy and makes us want to put our hands over our ears. But guidance is something most of us long for are we going in the right direction or are we going in the wrong direction tell me yeah i mean if if so if if it is a personalized ex for each person because as you said some people might hear criticism more some people might hear the positive side more how does one take actionable steps to make sure that their feedback is 
you know, radically candor. Yeah. Knowing that they don't know. Yeah. So, so one simple way is to ask the person. Uh, so at the end of a conversation, you can say, was this helpful? Cause your goal in these conversations is to help the person grow. And, uh, and so, so you can ask explicitly, but you also, you know, at one point I actually tried to build an app that would prompt people to give you feedback on your feedback. It was very meta. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is people are uncomfortable enough with feedback, giving you feedback on their feedback begins to feel like too much. Yeah. So you also need to learn how to pick up on the more subtle cues from people. So you want to make sure that you are paying attention, that you're not discounting the emotional responses that you're getting from people. Uh, you can also ask them for a plan. So what are we going to do about this? And very often when somebody tells you what they're going to do or what they're not going to do based on what you've said, like when I said to Cheryl, oh, I'm too busy. I'm not going to go to see the speech coach. <laughs> she knew she hadn't yet achieved radical candor. She was still being ruinously empathetic with me. So she had to go a step further. And so being aware of whether, of whether the person is upset and also whether the person has heard you. Far more, I think very often when we go into these feed, feedback conversations, we're afraid that the other person will get upset. But more often than not, what happens is that we say it so gently, the other person hasn't heard us at all. Mm. And, and when you notice that the other person hasn't heard you, you need to go further. You don't need to attend so much to the care personally dimension. You need to attend to the challenge directly dimension. You need to say it again, sort of like Cheryl said it three times, three different ways to me before she finally got through to me. And so you want to you want to make sure that the person gives you some sign that they've understood, and you want to you want to sort of work with the person you want to let them know that you're there to help them solve the problem but but the person ultimately has to own solving the problem so cheryl yeah. offered the speech coach for example and when i said i would go then she knew sh she had achieved radical candor with me yeah. so looking for not just acknowledgement but action and change as as the result of uh, of feedback and i think Another piece of useful advice that Cheryl gave me on responding well to feedback, showing that you've heard it, is that very often it's not enough to correct. You actually have to overcorrect because it feels so uncomfortable. Changing behavior feels, feels so uncomfortable. Sure. And so she would often say, you'll know that you have responded well to feedback when someone tells you you've gone too far. <laughs> uh, so push the limit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe you could say one or two ums, Kim. Now you sound like a robot. Uh, <laughs> so, so you want to make sure that you are working with the person to come up with a plan to fix the problem. And that's why you, you were sort of alluding before to how it can be sort of confusing because you don't want to make a personal attack, but you do want to personalize the, um, the, the it's, it's just a small semantic difference, but it's a big deal. So you want to make sure you're adjusting for how the person is hearing you, but you don't want to give them feedback on things they can't change, on fundamental personality attributes.
So, for example, Cheryl said to me in the meeting when you said, um, it made you sound stupid. There's a world of difference between saying that and saying, Kim, the problem with you in this job is that you're too dumb to do it. Like that, oh, that yeah, would not completely be completely different. You know, totally different deal. So you want to make sure that you're you're focusing on uh, the Center for Creative Leadership has a very useful tool, situation behavior impact. In the meeting, when you said um every third word, it made you sound stupid. So now that I understood the impact. That was what gave me the motivation to go fix the problem because I saw the impact that I was going to have on, on my career and on my ability to get the get things done. Yeah, it seems like the the big one, the, at least the big takeaway for me is is when you're giving feedback, stick around to gauge either ask for more feedback on the feedback, which most people may not want to do, but at least stick around to set up an actionable plan so that you can see the reaction of how people took the feedback if yeah. they went through one ear and the other because they completely uh, dismissed what you said, then probably didn't go through. And if yeah. it's the latter, uh, it, it's completely important. But I wanted to, uh, well, I wanted to actually ask you because of, of how the world is going so remote with COVID, the critical part of what you're, uh, what you share in the book is that it has to be in person. And yeah. it totally and, and now makes sense. it can't. Now it can't. And, and now person. it can't. But in person is so much easier. Even interviews like this is so much easier to read the body language, to, yeah. to, to get a better sense of the tone of the voice, all of that stuff. But uh, with people working remotely, I mean, I have a remote company from from day one as well. So this is particularly something that's curious for me uh, that I'm interested in. How does one shift their strategy if they're a manager or an employer in this new world that we're in? So I, I, even before COVID, I had an experience where I had to manage remotely because I was, uh, I was pregnant with twins and I was 40 years old. So I was advanced maternal age. And so it was very high risk pregnancy. And I had teams in 13 different countries. And I talked to my doctor about whether or not I could travel. And she was like, well, it depends. What's more important to you, the hearts and lungs of your children or these business trips? I'm like, okay, I'm not traveling. So I sort of had to manage remotely for, for most of the pregnancy. And then, and then also uh, I, I did go on a full five-month maternity leave. But, uh, but after maternity leave, I just wasn't able to travel as much. And so here's what I learned in, in that period of time. One thing is that there's a hierarchy of mediums. And so a video call gets you maybe 60, 70% there in terms of reading body language, seeing the expression on someone's face, uh, understanding a little bit how your words are landing for that person. It's way better than a phone call, but a phone call is way better than any kind of asynchronous communication, texting or email or whatever. So you want to you want to have these conversations, these kind of feedback conversations synchronously. And that is uh, that is the most important thing. The other thing that I learned is you need to really create sort sort of in, in the story I told in the um story I told, Cheryl said, walk back to my office with me. And you're not going to do that in the in the in quarantine, but you do want to make sure, for reasons of giving feedback, but also for reasons of just managing 
your energy throughout the day, you want to make sure you have a few minutes of slack time in between meetings so that you can call someone right after a meeting and have a quick chat. So you want to build some slack time into your schedule is really important. Another thing that I learned when managing a remote team is that it is really helpful uh, to have more frequent one-on-ones, more frequent shorter one-on-ones. So if you have only, uh, you know, if you have a 50-minute one-on-one once a week when you're in person, when you're not in person, it's better maybe to have three 15-minute one-on-ones throughout the week uh, mm. to do more quick. Because if you're only talking to someone once a week one-on-one, you're not getting any of the emotional tenor of the things that are happening throughout the week. You're just getting that 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 one snapshot of how the person is doing. So I think uh, t- talking to people more often. I, I once worked in Moscow, and my boss was in New York, and he used to call me every morning. But, and there was a big time zone problem, right, also. Mm. But he used to call me as soon as, as he woke up. Uh, before he would even get out of bed, he would talk to me. And uh, and this was really important because just that five minutes, it wasn't it wasn't like a big burden on him. It wasn't a scheduled thing. So if I was in a meeting or something, it was okay if I didn't take the call. But just that ability to check in because things were a little um, things were a little tense in Moscow at that time. This was yeah. 19, 1992, uh, 93. And. Um, so it was useful to just check in and I was there alone, you know, so it was really good to have that, uh, that just that quick touch point uh, every day. So the short meetings are a big deal. The other thing that is a really big deal if you have time zone problems, if people are in different countries is to work. The, the problem is you don't have much synchronous overlap in your schedules often. And so I would work one week per quarter European hours and one week per quarter uh, Asian hours. And it was it was terrible to go into the office at two in the morning or whatever that wow. I had to do. But it was a lot less bad than traveling. Um, so and it was possible. I, I just couldn't travel. So so that was actually really helpful. And, and another thing that I learned that was helpful to sort of recreate some of the some of the um, sort of texture of the real world is that sometimes I would have tea with people and we would both have our cups of tea, you know, <laughs> and some, sometimes I would take a walk with someone and we would, we would be in this case sort of not on video usually, cause that would mean we would trip and fall. Yeah. But what, this is especially in the COVID era where we're all sitting in front of these zoom screens or the, or Google hangout screens or Skype screens or whatever technology we're using all day long. I think that is bad. Like that is just bad for your brain. And so I've really encouraged people to take walking one-on-ones. So you want to trade off between uh, the benefits of seeing someone in person, but also the benefits of giving someone a break to take a walk. Um, Sorry, that's my dog (laughs) in the background. Um, to take a walk, to get outside, to get some natural sunlight. Uh, sure. So sometimes, sometimes that's a trade-off worth making. Yeah, I had an employee once who we brought on, and she definitely was not used to working remotely. And I'm sure a lot of people are going through this right now. So I was so used to it because we've been two years remotely, so we brought this new person on. And she kept mm-hmm. wanting to talk afterwards 
So we scheduled at 15 minutes. And in the beginning, I went long. I went 25 minutes and we made sure that, you know, I, I was showing that I was, I was personally interested. But after like six months, it just kept dragging on. Yeah. And it was very uncomfortable for me to tell her, like, listen, this, I, <laughs> because it's remote also, I wanted to feel really comfortable, but it was a very uncomfortable conversation where I had to tell her, like, listen, like I have meetings after this as well, and I would love to catch up, but we kind of need to keep that part over Slack. And especially with remote, I felt like giving feedback and that kind of feedback is was very difficult. And, uh, and I'm sure a lot of managers now are, are certainly going through that, even just remote employees that are giving feedback to each other and coworkers and stuff. Yeah, I think especially right now when different people have such different demands on their time and needs for social interaction, it's really tricky. So there are some people I work with who really need to talk because they're living alone, right? Mm. And so so this our calls are, you know, they'll become like a social call as well as and and a and and a human lifeline and and I want to give that to people at the same time I have I have young children at home and like every minute of my day and I'm trying to finish a book and I'm trying to and every minute of my day is spoken for and 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 frankly I have more you know I have I'm I'm long human interaction <laughs> Uh, what I really want is a little time alone. Sure. And and so I think being respectful of each other's sort of needs, like my need, my and I and I just try to be explicit about it. I'm like, my, the greatest gift you can give me is 10 minutes of free time. <laughs> like, yeah. There's nothing nicer you could do for me. Like, um, and and sometimes that sounds a little harsh, but it's just it's my reality. And, and I think being able to share different realities with different people and, and like I can see when I can see that that either people I work with or friends of mine are really lonely. I'll try to put them in touch because I know that I can't right now um, offer the kind of companionship that they need. And, and that's it's a tricky thing right now because. A lot of work is social, and mm -hmm. that has disappeared. That social part, uh, yeah. and 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 it's important to be sensitive to people's needs, but also to assert your own. Like I just can't, I can't spend an extra fifteen minutes on the on the video call yeah. with you. And it's weird because I find it way easier to give another man feedback like that, and I, I feel that I don't know. It, it's probably just in my head at the end of the day, right? Uh, <laughs> Whereas like when I have a female employee, I feel like I have to be a little bit more sensitive and I have to be kind of go around it. So I find myself actually not being so radically candor with female employees versus male employees just because I've given feedback directly to my male friends and they've generally taken a well. So I'm used to that habit of just like, listen, man, and we can talk directly. Whereas, whereas a female, apart from a girlfriend, which can get very emotional, that's like the memory that I have. And I'm yeah. not sure if females feel the same way when giving feedback to to males versus versus females. What have been your experience around that? Yeah, so this is the topic of my whole next book. So you're going to have a hard time shutting me up. Uh, oh, so this is something okay. I care a lot about. 
So I think one of the things that happens is it, it is hard to be radically candid with someone who looks like you. It's even harder to be radically candid with someone who doesn't look like you, especially in today's environment, because I think a lot of us are afraid uh, of looking like a sexist or a racist or a homophobe, like what, like and and the vast majority of people really don't want to be those things, <laughs> really aren't those things. Yeah. And yet we all do things that are racist, that are sexist. And uh, and so and, and when we do, most of us feel a great sense of shame. And when we're in shame, we're in this sort of lockdown and we're it's you know, we're in a situation of amygdala hijack, <laughs> like our our cognitive our, our, you know, our prefrontal cortex is not firing. Uh, we're 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 deep in a lizard brain and fight or flight response. Yeah. And and so I have several several bits of advice for sort of managing this because it's really important. I think one of the things that there and there's a lot of research uh, uh, that shows this that one of the things that really holds underrepresented people back in their careers is that they don't get as much feedback from their bosses. So it's really important that that you as a manager give the women on your team uh, just as clear feedback as you give the men on your team. It's, re it's really important that I as a white person give the, the people of color on my team just as clear feedback as I give the other white people on my team, so on and so forth. But it's really hard. It's really, it's much harder. And so I think that that one one of the suggestions that I say to men is is that first of all it's your job to give everybody equally clear feedback. Second of all, you're very often afraid that that a woman will cry if you give her feedback. If maybe I'm wrong, but I think a lot of men are. And and I th I think that the, at least maybe this says more about me than men or women, but the men who've worked for me have cried just as often as the women who've cried for me. Oh, but really? Men, men cry too. <laughs> I've got news for you. Uh, so, so, uh, and also like, even if the woman does cry, you are not water soluble. You will not melt. It's not the end of the world. Like you can sure. deal with it. Uh, and so sort of learning, learning to accept the different kinds of emotions, but also learning not to uh, gender stereotype the kind of emotions that you that you might get. But at the same time, I, I do want to acknowledge it's harder. It is harder to give feedback to someone who looks different from you. So it's like one of the things you have to learn to do and push yourself to do yeah. as a leader uh, so that's one of the suggestions I make to men. Another thing that happens, I think, for women is very often I have found in my career when when I am being radically candid, I get unjustly accused of obnoxious aggression because people expect women to be gentler, kinder, not to challenge them directly. And uh, and and usually when that happens, I don't get called obnoxiously aggressive, I get called bitchy or abrasive or something like that. And that's painful. It's, and it's, yeah. it, it makes it very tempting. You know, I get called unlikable. Um, and, and, and when you get called something like that, uh, it's very tempting to move off, move the wrong direction on challenge directly. And that's a huge mistake, because then I wind up obnoxious aggression is bad. But but if I 
go the wrong way on challenge directly, I wind up in ruinous empathy or the other quadrant, which is what I call manipulative insincerity, where you're neither caring nor challenging. And those places are even worse than obnoxious aggression. So what I try to do in those cases is to take a moment to show that I care, like not too much of a moment. I don't need to go baking cupcakes for the whole office or anything like that, because then I'll just be pissed off. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but to say, look, I, I can see that you really care about this podcast. I want you to make it much better. And I have the suggestion that I think will help. So, so just take a moment to say that you care. So I think those dynamics are really important to be aware of. And I think also if you're a woman working for a man, it's important to know that he's going to have a harder time giving you feedback and to pull it out of him. And it's also really important to distinguish between legitimate feedback and gender biased feedback. Uh, mm. So so I had a boss once who said, you know, you're you're struggling with the competence likability bias. And he was putting it on me to and the competence likability bias basically means the more competent a woman is, the more likable she is, the, the, the less people are like her, the more unlikable she is. So uh, the more competent, the less people like her. So that's a that's a hard bind to be in because I'm good at my job. And so you hate me because I'm good at my job. Like, that's not really fair. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, and so he told me this and then he was like, so, so, and I thought he was going to deal with the bias, you know, and, and instead he was like, so can you try to be more likable? I was like, that's bullshit. Um, uh, you know, it is your job as a leader to create an environment in which bias doesn't play out. It is not my job to tip the toe through the tulips of your team's gender bias. That doesn't make any sense. He's basically by saying that there's uh, that the more, competent you are that less people like you he's basically asking you to do a worse job in your role so that you can become more likable yes it, it makes no sense but but a lot of things a lot of things don't make any sense okay. a lot of things are ridiculous he didn't actually in the end what he did was he said well maybe if i give you a demotion then they'll be less je- jealous of you i'm like jesus you know, i quit uh <laughs> Yeah, we're far behind of uh, reaching that kind of equality in the workplace. And yeah. I imagine now that we're going remote and with all the commotion that's going on with, with you know, with Black Lives Matter and cancer culture, like it's just kind of exponentially put on top of each other. So your message is probably more relevant than ever for anyone that is kind of going through this right now. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it is a. I mean, I'm sort of optimistic about the the that we will take a step in the right direction as as a culture, and that Black yeah. Lives Matter, and 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 Me Too, and these movements that are really uh, making it impossible to overlook the way that bias and prejudice play out in our lives, yeah. uh, and and also giving people more permission to confront these problems in the workplace. Uh, so I'm, in, in that sense, I'm, I'm optimistic that, that change will happen. But I do think that being remote makes it much harder uh, yeah. to start to make that kind of change. And we're already seeing a lot of uh, examples of, uh, and a lot of data that show that women tend to get fired faster than men 
in an economic crisis, uh, underrepresented uh, minorities tend to get uh, tend to get fired faster than uh, faster than white people. And so we really need to start to track and measure the way that our often unconscious biases turn into what I call unconscious discrimination. And we need to, to point it out and, and to be unflinching uh, in our willingness to call these problems out because, uh, because it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big deal. I mean, I think another thing that managers can do in COVID to create more radical candor on their teams is to be aware of how much airtime people take in meetings, for example. Because very often you have a bloviating bully on the team who talks, you know, there's a team of 10 people and one person's talking 60% of the time. And you don't get the best teamwork. There's a lot of evidence that shows that when, when everyone on a team makes a contribution, the team performs much better. When one person dominates, the team performs much worse. It's true of sports teams. It's also true of teams in business. And so you want to make sure, and invariably, the bloviating bully uh, is, you know, is, is not the black woman on your team. I'll put it that way. Uh, the bloviating bully is, is usually someone who's not even aware that they're hogging all the airtime, uh, but who's just been always given the floor their whole life. Sure. And so, so making sure that you're aware of those kinds of dynamics and it's more it's harder if it's hard to get a word in edgewise in person, it's even harder over video. Mm. Beautiful. Well, Kim, I, uh, I, I really enjoy this conversation. As I mentioned, this is more relevant than than ever during these times as people go remote, as people are dealing with all this commotion that's happening. Um, I'd love to you know, getting an actionable piece of advice for listeners or people that are watching this is something that they can do as soon as they finish uh, watching or, or listening to this that they can take action on to become more radically candor, whether it's because we talked a lot about, you know, obviously, entrepreneurs, we talked a lot about managers in this conversation. But I also want to try to make it applicable as possible, because people may want to transfer this knowledge into giving feedback to their spouse, to their yes. friends, to, and I really wanted to go into you because I have a very specific case of thing that of a thing that I'm dealing with a friend and I don't know how to give them feedback, but, um, you know, something that you can share for people to do something small, but actionable after they listen to this. Yes. I, I will say that very often when I give a talk about radical candor, Somebody will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, oh, if only I had heard this five years ago, I wouldn't be divorced right now. So it works with it works at home, too. It works with your Beautiful. friends, works with your family. So here is my advice. The most the, the right place, there's an order of operations to radical candor. And it all starts with soliciting feedback, not with giving it. And so decide right now who are you going to ask to give you feedback and what's the question you're going to use? So, and I'll give you one that I like, but you've got to come up with your question. So a question that I like to use is what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me, but, or make it easier to be my friend or make it easier to stay married to me or what, whoever you're asking. And the, 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 there's a few key elements in, the, in this. The first is that the question needs to sound like you. So, for example, I worked with Krista Quarles when she was the CEO of OpenTable. 
And she said, I could never imagine asking that question. Those words just wouldn't come out of my mouth. The question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. Okay, that's a fine way to ask the question mm. too, but it's got to sound like you. And don't ask that question to someone who has a drug problem, by the way. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you want to be sensitive. So, so you want to make sure that you are that you are asking a question that sounds like you. That's number one. You want to make sure that your question can't be answered by, oh no, everything's fine. So if you say, do you have any feedback for me? You are wasting your breath because I can already tell you what the answer is. Oh no, everything's fine. So you want to make sure that you're asking the question in a way that is open-ended enough that is going to elicit an answer. And then you want to adjust the question for, for that person. So go out and ask for feedback. And after you ask your question, shut your mouth and count to six. Mm. Yes. And I would uh, love to refer the uh, one of my favorite quotes, uh, which is going to be a paraphrase by Tim Ferriss, which is a person's success in life can usually be measured by the number of uncomfortable conversations he or she is willing to have. So whoever is out there is thinking that it's going to be really uncomfortable. That's kind of the point. And it's, it's shown that you're probably going to have a more successful and, and better life because of it. Yes, absolutely. Change is uncomfortable, but it is necessary. Beautiful. Well, Kim, thanks so much for making the time to chat. Uh, where can people find you online? Where can people learn more about uh, Radical Candor, your next book and so forth? We'll, we'll link all that below. Uh, RadicalCandor.com is a great place to look for, uh, for, for more. There's also at uh, uh, Kimball Scott is, uh, is my Twitter handle or at Candor is, uh, is, is Radical Candor's Twitter handle. Nice. You guys got at Candor. Yes. Beautiful. Wow. Was that from the relationship with Dick? <laughs> no. Not <laughs> taken. Whatever. I'm just kidding. All right, Kim. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. And I'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.